I'm Mick Garrison. You are listening to Talking Bay 94. Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to one of the biggest inspirations for this show, Mick Garris. Yes, you may know Mick as one of the most influential genre writers and directors of all time, but you may not know that his first job in film was as the receptionist at the Star Wars Company in 1977, where he answered phone calls and operated R2-D2 for the Oscars, and yes, even the holiday special. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 106, Mick Garris. Well, I mean, before... Everything, everything that you've done. I, I always like to just kind of start way at the beginning. Where did this love for genre or horror or sci-fi or anything, where did that kind of come from growing up? And what were your first loves, I guess, as a child? Well, I guess it came from television. I was one of the first television generations. You know, I, I was born in the early 50s. And so grew up with uh, the universal package uh, shown on the local uh, in Los Angeles on the local channel, Channel 5, on Saturday afternoons and then late at night on the weekends. The first movie I remember seeing was Son of Kong. Mm. My mother had seen King Kong in the movie theater as a two-year-old. It terrified her. <laughs> so there were four Garris kids and uh, me and my two brothers and my sister and both parents were there watching it. She wanted it to be a good experience and not be terrified as she was when she peed in her dad's shoe out of fear. <laughs> so that's the first movie I remember seeing, and wow. it captivated me. You know, the giant gorilla, Son of Kong is a comedy. There was no fear that it was going to give us terrible nightmares or anything. It was heartbreaking at the end. He, you know, we lose Son of Kong. But uh, I was fascinated. I knew it wasn't real because it was so jerky, mm -hmm. but it was fantastical in a way that that captivated me. And and as an outsider kind of kid, like so many of the people of the Monster Kid generation, right were i was really drawn to monsters and fantasy and and that sort of thing from a from a very early age and i started drawing cartoons and writing my father was a trained artist although he was never able to make a living at it very talented much more so than me in that regard but i drew i took after him in that regard i started writing short stories and things and they were all spooky oh henry endings and poe uh -huh. kind of inspiration and the like. So the Otre always captivated me and I was into comics and all of that stuff. The DCs in my day, it was right. a bit of a predecessor before Marvel really took off. DC was the thing. Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, Dell and Gold Key and, and Carl oh, Banks, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. That's all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Going from drawing and cartooning and those aspirations, how did that kind of evolve? First, it was music and the horse feathers and and that, yeah. how did that kind of transform for you? And where, where did you find the inspirations and where did you find that passion? I always wrote, um, you know, from the time I was 12, I started seriously writing. And then it was when I was 18 that I joined Horse Feathers. And that kind of changed my focus a bit because I was a music journalist as well. So I wrote about music. 
I interviewed rock stars like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix when I was a teenager (laughs) and worked in record stores to make my meager living and get my free (laughs) albums and concert tickets and the like. So music played an important part to me, but I never lost the love of movies and television, especially the outre. And so I was always drawn to that. And I kept writing short stories. And when I was singing in a rock and roll band and writing songs, it was all original music and the like. Uh, I kind of had a dream that maybe we would have that success in the band and it would allow me the opportunity to write screenplays that would get produced and maybe eventually direct one day. And so that was that was the dream as a teenager. And of course, that, that music brought you to LA where I believe you were working at Tower Records. Yeah. How did you first get involved with the Star Wars company and with the late Charlie Lippincott? And- I was working at Tower Records and I was born in LA. We'd gone to San Diego during my childhood and then came back with the band to LA. And uh, a friend of mine, Carl Masek, who was a journalist and with whom I'd done a couple interviews, we co-interviewed Roger Corman for the uh, local daily news and some things like that. He said that they were looking for somebody at Star Wars and I should go meet Charlie Lippincott. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that they were, I made an appointment they were looking for a receptionist. I didn't know what the job was. I had seen these, uh, when Star Wars was coming out, I didn't know what it was, nobody did, but they sold boxes and boxes of the soundtrack album before the movie came out at Tower Records, where I was working. And they had movie posters and and lobby cards and the like with what looked like a werewolf, you know, and, <laughs> and creatures and the like. And so that was, God, maybe I can work for Star Wars. And so I met with Charlie Lippincott, who was the guy in charge of marketing and and really devised the whole idea of genre marketing for a movie, you know, taking it to Comic-Con where nobody had ever done that before. Charlie was a great guy. He hired me on the spot and then took me out to lunch. A group of us there went out to lunch and I didn't have a penny with me. And it was like, I was embarrassed (laughs) beyond belief because... I didn't know I was starting the job that day, and uh, and I did, and so he had to loan me money, and he said, "You don't worry, don't worry, you don't have to pay me back." We went to a local burger joint uh, across the street from Universal Studios, and so that was that was the beginning. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I guess even taking it before then, you mentioned kind of some of your early uh, visual memories of seeing kind of Star Wars around, but were you able to watch the movie before you got the job? Did you? What was your experience watching it? The movie actually came out before I got the job, Mm -hmm. but um, not long before. And so this, the whole idea of how to handle the phenomenon that was Star Wars in 1977, nobody had ever done that before. And even Jaws, Jaws was a phenomenon in the same way, but there is a community of science fiction fans that, was enormous, but nobody had tapped into it before Star Wars. Jaws was mainstream as can be, right. uh, but it wasn't something you could package into a into a genre. I mean, it was a thriller, it was a horror sure. movie, it was a drama, and it was a mainstream movie. Whereas nobody had made a fantastical movie that exploded 
with an audience like this had spaceships and laser battles and all of right. those things. They'd been done before, but not in this way. And right. this was making something very retro, but in a very modern sense. All of the ships looked used and beat up and pocked with meteorites and laser blasts and things like that. Nobody had done that before. It was always clean. It was 2001, was impeccable and, and you know, so pure. And this was a little more ragtag and right. and characters that were a lot of fun. So tapping into going to science fiction conventions, which the mainstream knew nothing about, Charlie knew about them, took it to Comic-Con before anybody ever had taken a movie to Comic-Con. I trained under Charlie. I took that and then later on Alien to various comic conventions and writing stuff and getting the then nascent horror and science fiction magazines to cover this. Right. And it, it just took on a new life that lasted forever as belied by your podcast. Here. <laughs> right. Yeah. There wouldn't be a talking Bay 94. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And it, there wouldn't really be, as you're saying, film marketing as we know it without, without Charlie Lippincott, there would not be a hall H Marvel panel, whatever that wouldn't even cross anyone's mind. Absolutely. And he he was very groundbreaking and a very eccentric guy, but in a yeah. good way and a really good guy and and was accessible and, and made the fans feel included, you know, that yeah. they were important to the movie rather than just people who bought tickets. Genre fans, there's nobody more eager to own and possess their movies than the genre fans. They don't just go and see them. They live them. They memorize them. Yeah. They buy the merchandise. They buy the books. They they want the t-shirts, you know? They want the, at yeah. that time, yeah. the Kenner toys, you know? That's an interesting juxtaposition between that and Jaws, for instance, right? There was no really Jaws fan club. There were no Jaws Kenner toys, right? I think the Jaws, no. the Jaws log, I think, is maybe the furthest someone got in kind of that experience. Yeah. And so the fan club especially always sticks out to me, the Star Wars fan club, as being kind of a very paramount version of of what what fan and fandom could be yeah that's why they brought on craig miller and his office was right next to mine and as the uh as the receptionist i was answering phones going star wars may i help you mm -hmm. and uh <laughs> you know harrison ford would come in to see charlie and and mm -hmm. uh, uh who could i say is calling uh harrison ford oh geez i'm sorry i didn't recognize <laughs> you with the glasses on <laughs> and it was it was great, but it also led to me being given other duties, right. one of them being operating R2-D2 at personal appearances, which happened to include putting the feet in the cement at Grauman's Chinese Theater and also operating R2 on the Oscars that year in 78. You know? I love it. I think, I think that's the picture that exists of... If you type in Mick Garris Star Wars, I think that is the one. If you getting R2 ready for his big night. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I would love to kind of go back and talk about that. And that's a lot of, um, like you're saying, Craig Miller, Mickey Herman, that era of these, what would now be almost uh, crazy to think about. But all these TV specials, of course, you have Sesame Street and the Muppets and all these appearances that were happening in between A New Hope and, and Empire. Yeah, And so you mentioned operating R2, what was that like? What were you doing? And maybe you could use the Oscars as an example, but then I also, 
uh, I know there are a few other TV specials and potentially even a, a holiday themed TV special that you might have helped on as well. I was on the holiday special and I operated R2 throughout uh, the production of that. Uh, <laughs> that was just plain weird. You know, <laughs> we knew it was ridiculous even at the yeah. time it was happening. And, you know, George was not allowed to have control over that. 20th Century Fox did. And they were very old fashioned modes of of thinking and getting, you know, these Hemi and Smith uh, productions doing that kind of really square, lame ass TV special with B. Arthur and Art Carney and all these really strange choices for what was the hippest movie out there. But it it was interesting. The first thing I did was um, there was Mickey's 50th birthday special. And R2 and C-3PO were guests on there. And basically it was just wishing Mickey, you know, happy 50th birthday, Mickey. Ha <laughs> ha. And, uh, and so that was a lot of fun. And, and Mickey Herman, you know, really was the person in charge of R2-D2's appearances, as mm-hmm. well as Kermit Eller and his uh, Darth mm-hmm. Vader. And so she would be, you know, uh, she had a t-shirt made up for me that said R2-D2 manager. But, <laughs> I still have around somewhere. It's a little small, That's great. but That's great. Um, but it was a remote control unit of Futaba, which is what you would use to run uh, remote control airplanes at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there would be two uh, toggle switches and a flip switch. He had a little cassette player inside of him. And uh-huh. so all of those voices would be recorded. You'd flip a switch, it would come on and then off when you turn it off. But you didn't know where it was going to be in the recording. So it was a right. long loop of, you know, all these right. sounds that would just be flip switches. And um, it was so much fun and so cool to be the guy who, who was lugging him around in a, in a van um, <laughs> one of the most memorable times was the theater owners convention. Every year they, they had a convention in Las Vegas. They would have some big promotion. And this one, the big surprise was R2-D2 was coming from the back of the hall of hun- <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of people up to the stage where he'd be lifted onto the stage. We had him plugged in, but we didn't realize there was a short in the charger. <gasps> So uh-huh. he had virtually no power and we didn't know why. And, you know, he's going down from the back of this hall, hundreds of cheering people standing and he's going like <laughs> three inches an hour, you know, just kind of creeping <laughs> down. <laughs> you know, it was, so we figured it out fortunately before the Oscars, but that was, that was an ulcer night. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it, an ulcer night. Because then, of course, Oscar night, that was, I mean, that's the most Oscars a Star Wars movie has ever won. What what was that night like? Because I know, of course, they were, Ben Burt was winning the awards and everyone was presenting. And, you know, we've seen, it was kind of funny seeing that happen, I think, a couple years ago with R2 and 3PO and BB-8 now, right? Doing the same yeah, kind of yeah. returning to the Oscars. And I'd love to maybe pick your brain before moving on to the... <laughs> I feel so stupid asking you the one of the most accomplished people that I have such fondness for <laughs> these just <laughs> these banal questions about a receptionist job you had. 
40 years ago. But, no, no. But no, I mean, every bit of that is as important to me as any other job I've ever had. But well, the Oscars was interesting. I had the night before R2 was in my apartment. <laughs> You know, these days you would never just give it to the operator and say, you know, bring him in at this time. We rented a van and all. And so I just had him in my apartment in Studio City. And, you know, the next day loaded him into the van and took him in the van and driving to the Oscars and going into the underground parking there were air conditioning ducts that were really low. And this was a very high profile van. And I remember pulling in and it's a rented van <laughs> and hearing <laughs> as the whole top of the van was being creased as I passed <laughs> under the water pipes and hoping nobody noticed it. It's on the top. So right. who's going to notice after you turn it in? <laughs> But then, uh, yeah, the the Oscars, it's the only time I ever have or will be at the Oscars, uh, and naturally not on my own merits. Having him there, being in the green room uh, with Jack Nicholson and Betty Davis, and Jack Nicholson is leering at Olivia Newton-John, who's wearing a very sheer outfit in front of a light, and he's just leering at her going, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then when... Uh, when Diane Keaton was called out as best actress for Annie, uh, Annie mm-hmm. Hall, Betty Davis is going, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. <laughs> and at the rehearsal luncheon, I was seated next to Frank Capra, you know, <laughs> wow. nobody's talking to him and I'm asking him all yeah. these questions about his movies and, you know, can't believe that this guy who six weeks before was working at Tower Records right. is suddenly right. thrust in the center of this magical world that I never thought I would get anywhere near to. Of course, it's as a receptionist and a remote control robot operator, <laughs> but still, no, you know, I love it. And it was a magical time. It really is testament, though, to your work ethic and your passion for, for genre and for film. And it's something that carries through even to now and what you're doing now. And I'd love to maybe take uh, take the gas off of Star Wars for a moment and, and talk a little bit about what happens after, which is your film publicity work and these incredible things that you were really kind of, like we were talking about Charlie Lippincott, very paramount and really defining what we've come to expect from a genre film and its release and I guess it starts, if I'm correct, with Fantasy Film Festival, or how did that transition from Star Wars to then film publicity happen for you? I was working at Star Wars, and then Charlie was hired, his company, Creative Movie Marketing, Mm -hmm. was hired to do Alien as well. Mm -hmm. So I started doing convention shows for Alien with a a big selection of slides that we would show. And then I started working for Universal and doing Conan and, and... uh, all of those. But while I was, uh, the first one was at Avco Embassy, mm-hmm. where after Star Wars, I was hired to to promote their genre films. And during that time, um, the local pay TV channel in Los Angeles was called the Z Channel. Mm-hmm. And this was before the local cable ch- uh, companies carried HBO and Showtime or anything like that. So they would show two movies a week, like a movie theater schedule would, just alternating the two movies all week long with maybe a special on the weekend. Uh-huh. So 
I started writing for the magazine for Z Channel. Mm -hmm. And the program director at the time was a guy named Hal Kaufman. And I told him, you know, I'd really love to do an interview show where we show science fiction, fantasy, and horror films. And I would interview the people who made these movies. So this is 1979 now, after Star Wars and after I'd done, uh, I was just doing, just starting at Avco Embassy mm -hmm. to do specialized publicity for their genre films, of which they had a number of them coming up, 1980. So I got it. It was a 15-minute interview before we would run the movie. Uh -huh. I would talk to Christopher Lee, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, uh, Steven Spielberg, right. Most notably, because that played a part in what was to happen later in my career. But it was the this cable company was in the areas where people in the industry lived on the west side uh, in Beverly Hills and Santa Monica and all that and in the hills of uh, Hollywood Hills and the like. So suddenly I'm starting to get recognized as that guy on the Z channel. That's great. And I'm talking to my idols right. like Spielberg and Carpenter and all this. And so that's what helped me get the, the job at Avco Embassy. And then I hired myself to do making of documentaries on The Howling and on Scanners and on Escape from New right. York. And uh, well, The Fog was the first one. Yeah. So that was kind of where I started learning how to put pieces of film together and tell a story, you know, in documentary, you just film a bunch of stuff, you have to give it shape, and you have to have a point of view. And that's how I learned to put pieces of film together and make it make sense in a jigsaw puzzle. Oh, I love that so much. Because I mean, again, you're talking, you said 1979, and Steven Spielberg, that's after Close Encounters, probably while he's filming or right before Raiders, right? And it, you're at the kind of forefront yeah. of like this explosion of this golden age of horror and genre, this reinvigoration of all of this. And again, your featurettes, especially as you were able to kind of own your distinct style, are far beyond these EPK publicity, whatever things that are coming out now. And I'm thinking of the ones like Goonies and Gremlins that are that tell a story and that are like so tangible and, and really kind of breathe insight to it. And I'd love to maybe, you said the first one, of course, is, is The Fog, Fear on Film, I think it was called. Right. And maybe I'd right. love to chart your journey of you discovering your own unique voice first in these kind of making ofs. And then that, of course, translates to you becoming even more adept at storytelling as the years progress. Well, all this time, I was still writing spec scripts that nobody ever read or sold or bought or anything. And as a documentarian, if you are working on a promotional documentary, the idea is to get out of the way and not feel important. Right to appeal to myself. You know, I'm a fan. Mm -hmm. I love movies. I love genre movies. And so, yeah, I'm going to interview Rob Bottin as well as Joe Dante, right. but it's more about the filmmakers than the actors. Yes, we had Hoyt Axton in the Gremlins uh, documentary right. and all, but it's the making of the movie that was most interesting to me. And that's the writer and the director and the makeup effects technician, particularly in movies like The Fog and The Howling right. and, you know, uh, American Werewolf in London, things like that. So for The Fog, my initial work was really, I wasn't on the set. The film had already been shot mm -hmm. and I was selecting takes from some things the film had not been completed, but I would have pieces that they would have completed 
to use as clips. And so all I did was interview uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and Jamie Lee Curtis and her mother uh-huh. and uh, uh, Janet Lee. <laughs> And a bunch of no, a then, no name, no name people. Yeah, yeah, no, nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the time, <laughs> Carpenter and Hill and Amy were, were not that well known. Right. Uh, well, it was right after Halloween. Right. So, so really, it was a matter of choosing clips and then figuring out what the best pieces of the interviews would be and how to lead them into each other and weave them together. That was the first one. And I didn't know what I was doing, but, uh-huh. you know, it was. I knew enough to make it make sense and and to be interesting and to make you want to see the movie, which is the point. And then I was able to really actually have a crew on the making of the thing and take a camera and sound man up to British Columbia and on and go on to a glacier where they're shooting the 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 main station of of the crew there. Uh as well as go on the sets at Universal, which were refrigerated so that you could see the breath of the characters and the like, and and tell people about the things that happened behind the curtain, you know, and have that access. But if, if there's anything that marks what I did as a documentarian and an interviewer, it's curiosity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a love of movies and how they're made. And, you know, you don't want to spill the surprises before you see the movie, but afterwards it's fair game right. to, to have all that stuff. That's why all the the special uh, edition Blu-rays and the like are, are worthwhile. Doing those promotional documentaries, they were only like eight to 10 minutes long. And it was what was fascinating to me uh, in the hopes that that fascination and curiosity is universal. So what I'm curious about, I'm hoping you are too. Oh, that's great. And that, of course, that worked because I think it instilled even more so into a generation that was growing up with things like Fangoria and Cinefesti, you know, all these becoming a, a really holistic way of looking at movies and these documentaries became a really key part of that. And I read those magazines as well. And I wrote for them too, right. you know, the, that round table that I did for Universal with John Carpenter on The Thing, John Landis on American Werewolf, and David Cronenberg on Videodrome, that was edited down to a half-hour show. Right. But the whole thing ran in Fangoria in right. two parts. They, they ran the whole thing. Again, I could just gush and gush and gush about kind of, again, it's so documented and so well-captured in part because of you, but then you are also able to really add your own piece of that tapestry as the years progress and i'd love to first start and not delve too deep because otherwise i would have you for hours and i don't want to take too much more of your time but but one of those first breaks came kind of directly from this which was of course amazing stories as you mentioned earlier with with steven spielberg and i'd love to maybe talk about how that how that transition happened (laughs) how that happened yeah and and what what you learned and what you kind of uh, experienced especially with something as robust as Amazing Stories became. Well, it started out the first time I'd met Stephen, he was on the Z Channel show. And after we did the interview, and this preceded um, showing Close Encounters. And at the end of the interview, he said with a great deal of surprise, you know, I really enjoyed that, Mick. (laughs) And you don't always enjoy being interviewed, I guess. Um, But I, I hope that I always do my homework, no matter what the job is. And don't just go over the same ground that's been trod 
over and over and over. So that was where we first met. And then I was doing publicity on Poltergeist and on E.T. when I was doing publicity work. And Stephen had cut together the first 15 minutes of E.T. to show the marketing people. And I was in the room. And when he walked in and all of the other people at Universal were there, he comes in, oh, hi, Mick, how are you? <laughs> and everybody in the room, all their heads, these gray-haired people right. in suits, uh, very impeccably uh, groomed suits. And they're like, turned to this, at that time, kid, compared to them. Uh, and went, wait, who's this guy Stephen's so friendly with? <laughs> and then he's watching me all the way through, and I'm captivated by this these scenes from E.T. that would soon right. become iconic. But then when I was trying to make a go of it, trying to write, I'm writing spec stuff, nobody's seeing, nobody. I, I finally managed to get an agent at William Morris. And Stephen had hired me to do the making of, I had just done the making of Gremlins. And then they asked me to do the making of the Goonies as well. So I'm thrilled. It's the first day of shooting. We're setting up in front of the house where the Goonies all congregate in the opening of the movie, mm -hmm. setting up the lights to interview Stephen. And I'd interviewed him before. And it, I think it's one of the main reasons that I was asked to do the making of because of that interview. So we're getting ready to set it up. And he says, well, you, you must do a lot of these. And I said, well, I'm trying to make a go of it as a writer. And, and mm. you know, I mean, I love doing this, but I really, this is my passion. And nobody should ever say that to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> like, uh, it, it could be interpreted as trying to get a job. But sure. I was young, naive, and I was just responding to, to a statement he said while we're setting up. Right. He said, oh, really? Because, you know, we're looking for writers for this new series I'm doing called Amazing <laughs> Stories. And conveniently, my agent had gotten a spec script of mine to the readers at Amblin. And it turned out that as I was interviewing Stephen, that day, the readers were writing a report on this script I had written. And the very end of their report was hire this man. So I was the first person asked to write a script for Amazing Stories. Wow. which I didn't realize until years later, I was the first one. But Stephen said, let's give Mick a shot. I wrote it in three days. You know, I got a phone yeah. call at, at home from, I, I pick up the phone, and Steven Spielberg calling for Mick Garris, please. And I go, uh, this is Mick, please hold. And then my wife, Cynthia, said, Cynthia, it's Steven Spielberg, it's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and he gets on the phone and, says how much he likes it and would I write another one? Uh -huh. And so a day and a half, I, I spent three days writing the first one. Mm -hmm. Day and a half into the second one, they called me in to meet with me and asked me if I would be the story editor and go on staff and do that. Mm -hmm. And I was literally on films, uh, on food stamps. Wow. And I went from food stamps to a $100,000 a year job writing for Steven Spielberg in 1985. Incredible. And again, I keep it just a real testament to your drive and your talent and, and I, it, that, that and my really, luck and your, and, and my luck. And, but I mean, that, that is always part of, of any success I feel like is kind of knowing, knowing how to act on that luck. Right. And, and being, yeah, it's luck and timing and hopefully it's talent and it's, but it's also, the ability to create something that people want right and and be somebody that people want to work with as well 
And I feel like a lot of that comes, and it's so interesting to go back and watch, like you mentioned that round table with Cronenberg. And it's, it's so interesting to be able to go and watch that and see your comfort and your repartee and, and how people respond to you. And again, as I said before we started, like it is such an inspiration because you're able to connect on such a personal level. And, and I think people really gravitate towards that. And again, that comes through not only in just interviews or in your incredible podcast, but also in the works that you write, the scripts or the movies that you direct. And it really is kind of, it's the Mick Garris package and so well, it's great thank you i'm i'm blushing a lot here it's a good thing it's not a video uh yeah interview. um and i guess we, i don't want to go through every imdb credit or whatever it is but <laughs> but, but that'll I, take a while right we'll be here a while and, and you're busy and um i would love to maybe to fast forward to now and what you're doing now and um even though that means me skipping the stand tv series which is one of my favorite Thing. I revisited oh, it was you. it was both good and bad to revisit it over um this break right because oh, yeah. it was a little too timely because I read it I reread it as well and I was like it'd be fun I read it in July again and I was like oh uh, I forgot how like very timely it is and and then your your adaptation of it is because it is probably one of the most impossible things to try to adapt and you really it really blows me away rewatching it right after I reread it and I was like oh yes this works you. very well well, a lot of credit goes to the fact that the author wrote the screenplay as well. So uh, credit, credit where credit's due. Yeah. yeah. But, but thank you. So I guess moving all the way up to now, and if people listening to this show like it even a little bit, that you they will love what you've done with Postmortem and, and kind of this whole backlog of people you've been able to talk to revisiting these roots and... I'd love to talk about what you've maybe discovered as 30 years separating these kinds of interviews, right? These one-on-ones that you started your career with and now really delving in very much deeper with a lot of these heroes like we're talking about um, that are able to now reflect on their careers as well. And I'd love to see how that has impacted you and then what you've kind of taken from this most recent run, especially of of postmortem. Well, we've just hit the 100 interview mark on our show. We're in our fifth season. And the whole reason to do this is because I maintain curiosity about people whose work I admire. And even people whose work that I don't necessarily admire, but I find interesting as individuals and as creatives. And just how everybody does everything differently. Uh, It's not an exaggeration to say I've learned something from every single interview I've done. And it's not just necessarily about everybody's process, but it's their personalities. It's what appeals to them, what what excites them, what inspired them, what were the movies that impressed them, what are the things that impress them now. And the perspective is very different. I mean, 10 years ago, we did a TV version of Postmortem for FearNet, which you can get uh, at mickgarrisinterviews.com, as well as the old Z channel interviews that still survive. The difference is that now I'm a peer. I'm a filmmaker with 30 years of experience under my belt that, you know, they know that I've been in the trenches as well. And I can understand their perspective more than someone who's who's not been on the floor calling action with movie stars and with, you know, people who are much more well-known than me. Just that we know the process, but directors don't work together. And most of my guests have been directors. And it's an opportunity to compare notes and discover how one another works in that 
regard that you don't get from a journalist or a fan or something that that gives the show what I hope is a very distinctive flavor. People like Robert Rodriguez do that as well. But, you know, we do it every two weeks as a new interview. <laughs> I love it. There are some that, that stand out to me, I think, and not a director, but uh, Henry Thomas, who you were able to work ah, with and being able to yeah. revisit all that with him. I remember where I was listening to that episode. I was walking around a bookstore and being like, this is A, a masterclass in interviewing, but also just it was so heartwarming and so interesting to see how his career has developed, obviously, as from being a child star to now. And so that one I highly recommend. For sure. That was really a great perspective because I first worked with him when he was 18. And I had met him in the days of E.T. when he was 12, but there's no way he would have remembered that. And then worked with him again on Desperation and again on Masters of Horror and Chocolate. And so we had a history together that had shared touch points throughout the course of a couple of decades. And the ones that are the best are the ones that are personal, you know, where there's a connection in some way like that. People I've worked with like Ron Perlman, but some of them are people who were completely strangers to me before I had them on the show. You know, Walter Hill is an amazing interview and and every show we do, I hear every guest talk about something they've never discussed before. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because they feel comfortable exposing themselves, uh, you know, for, for the first three, four years, all of these interviews were done right here where I am. Now they're done virtually for the last year. But when you're able to sit in a room together and talk, and this is where I write, this is where, you know, Mm -hmm. I do all of my work. So it's, it's a really great place to talk about making movies and, and what led up to it. I love it. Well, that's all I, I want to bug you about. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. I will recommend, of course, again, Postmortem with McGarris, anywhere you listen to podcasts, the most recent episodes. I loved the Barbara Crampton, Larry Fessenden, because I was in the audience for the Larry Fessenden at um, Overlook. Oh, at the I, Overlook. Yeah, yeah, that was a great one. Yeah. And so it was interesting to listen to this with you know new perspective and, and getting more out of it, because also... In addition to the Henry Thomas, the first Barbara Crampton interview is one of my favorites. Me too. Because it, it got so personal and it was so interesting to kind of hear that that perspective. And she's obviously incredible. And then Adam Wingard, who directed Godzilla Kong, yeah. I think is another one of the most recent ones. So again, if I have not gushed enough about Postmortem <laughs> and you're listening to this show, you should turn this show off and go listen um, as many as you can. Because as you said, there's a hundred incredible moments of film history right. in that backlog. So... The other thing, too, is that every other week, every two weeks is an interview, but every other alternate week is the AMA episodes where it's right. Ask Me Anything, because I've had such a long career, there's so many things that people ask about that I would never think about. Right. And uh, so it's it's really fun and even borderline embarrassing <laughs> to, to answer some of those questions. I'm really trying at it to straddle both my Mick Garris impression and then also my Joe Russo impression in this interview, oh. because I feel like it's a, a combination of both. <laughs> Producer uh, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, all that to be said, Mr. Garris, thank you for coming on and talking about your first film job and everything since. And it really means a lot. So I appreciate wow. it. Well, Brandon, it was a total pleasure, and thank you for having me on and, and revisiting memories that I don't revisit often.
Thank you again to Nick for his generous time and his continual inspiration. He is truly what I consider to be the benchmark of being a great interviewer. If I didn't say it enough and you like horror and filmmaking even in the slightest, definitely check out Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network, as well as his vintage interviews on his personal website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. The links are in the show notes. And if right now you can leave a five-star rating and review for the show, it means so much and really helps us out. And if you haven't done it yet, please do it. But until next week, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you. That was incredible. Hopefully, I'll, when if you ever listen back to it, I will cut. I cut out most of my gushing in any of my interviews, anyway. So uh, uh, it'll be great. Wait, that's the best part. No. <laughs>